Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. All right, good evening, everyone. Begin the readout tonight by stepping into the shoes of the Ukrainian people. And I want you to imagine you're living in a metropolitan city like Kiev. You walk the streets with friends, you meet up for coffee, you peruse an outdoor market. You are living a completely normal life in an imperfect but Western democratic country. And then suddenly, all that normal is just gone. And what feels like an instant, suddenly, Your country is under attack by your neighboring country because their megalomaniac leader is nursing his unhinged personal nostalgia for a long forgotten despotic regime that your country liberated itself from. And you are caught in the middle. What do you do? The subway system you once used to move around the city is now a bomb shelter. Your grocery stores are eerily empty and just being on the streets is perilous. And you now have to make a decision. Do you try to ride it out, hide from the troops who could swarm in at any moment? Do you take your terrified kids or your elderly parents and try to get out of the country? Do you have your passports ready? Do you know where they are? Or do you stay and fight? Literally figure out how to go from casual shopper or barista or accountant to soldier. That is life right now for the 44 million people living in Ukraine. And now they have to grapple with their new normal. Listen to this student who spoke to NBC's Cal Perry at the train station in Lviv today. What is it like to see this? Uh, It's awful. Uh, Like uh, two weeks ago, we didn't even think uh, we didn't even think about that. A few days ago. Yeah, a few days ago, we were just uh, going to our uh, classes, uh, talking about I'm like the politology student. So for me, it's really awful to see that the actual wars are happening now and in my country. And uh, uh, the world is not really answering what we need because we really need need help. The Ukrainian government is literally handing out guns to citizens and authorities are encouraging people to make their own Molotov cocktails and prepare for what could be a long, ugly insurgency. Even grandmothers have been preparing to fight. Some, like this soldier who spoke to NBC's Kelly Kobiea, are crossing the border into Ukraine. We have war in Ukraine. Uh, I must, I must uh, go to Ukraine uh, from Austria. I have work in Austria, and I must go to Ukraine for war, yes, uh, because I, I am a soldier. I'm dying for my country. Uh. It's difficult. But not everyone is in a position to fight. Many are fleeing the country, with 100,000 leaving their homes and a 29-mile line, long line of cars just trying to get into Poland today. The U.N. is preparing for up to 5 million refugees if the situation continues to escalate. However, with Ukraine declaring martial law, men between the ages of 18 and 60 cannot leave. They're being urged by the government to do what they can 
to defend their country. Among the men pleading, pledging to take up arms, Hall of Fame boxers, the Klitschko brothers, one of whom, Vitali, is currently the mayor of Kiev. He said the city is now in a defense phase. The situation remains dire in the capital as Russian forces press closer, with the U.S. warning today that the fall of Kiev is a real possibility. Russian troops advanced on multiple fronts, although a senior U.S. defense official told NBC News that the assault on Kyiv had been slowed in the face of fierce Ukrainian resistance. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky remains defiant, posting a video of himself and his leadership team on the streets of Kyiv saying, we are all here. As Vladimir Putin appeared on Russian state television, urging Ukrainian troops to overthrow Zelensky's government. Zelensky held a secure call with President Biden today as the U.S. and Western allies ramped up their campaign to make Russia and specifically Vladimir Putin an international pariah. The Council of Europe, the continent's foremost human rights organization, suspended Russia. And in, at an emergency NATO summit, the alliance activated parts of its response force for the first time in its history to shore up NATO allies in Eastern Europe. The European Union and the UK moved to freeze the assets of Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov as part of a new tranche of sanctions. The United States followed suit, further isolating the Russian dictator. And in alignment with the decision by our European allies, the United States will join them in sanctioning President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov and members of the Russian national security team. Does it include a travel ban by chance? Uh, I believe that would be a part of the U.S. Uh, component, yes. In addition to slapping sanctions on Putin and Lavrov, the Treasury Department is also taking action against three Russian military leaders, its defense and deputy defense minister and army chief, further underscoring the extent of Russia's isolation in the face of its naked aggression. A short time ago, Russia was the sole veto of a U.N. resolution condemning the invasion. India, the UAE and notably China abstained from the vote. Meanwhile, in his latest address to the to the nation, President Zelensky warned that the night would be harder than the day, with many cities under attack, saying Ukrainians can't lose the capital, Kyiv, in the face of a full scale storm from the Russians. With me now, NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley reporting from Dnipro, Ukraine, Jack Crosby, Rolling Stone correspondent and an MSNBC contributor in Kharkiv, Ukraine, and Raf Sanchez, NBC News foreign correspondent in Moscow. And I am going to start with you, Raf Sanchez. Give us the latest. Uh, my understanding is that um, there was some unwelcome news in Moscow from the country of Kazakhstan, which has declined to get involved on Russia's side in this conflict. More on that. And uh, tell me what else is going on um, from where you are. That's right, Joy. Kazakhstan is one of Russia's closest allies. And the fact that they are saying, one, they will not send troops to fight in Ukraine, and two, they will not recognize these two so-called breakaway republics in the east of Ukraine is a sign of how isolated Vladimir Putin is right now on the world stage. Basically, the only two governments that are in lockstep with him right now are Belarus and the Assad regime in Syria. And as you said, both of those are international pariahs in their own right. It was very significant. China not vetoing, not voting against that resolution at the U.N. Security Council earlier, leaving the Kremlin really looking like it is out on its own on the international stage. Domestically, protests here in Russia continued for a second night against the war. They weren't as large as what we saw last night, but people still took to the streets despite knowing the consequences, knowing that they would face potential police violence, arrest, 
and prosecution. And I think it is a sign, Joy, of how strongly people here in Russia feel, in some quarters at least, that they are really not convinced this war that their leader has led them into is a good idea. Joy? Thank you very much, uh, Raf. Appreciate you. Let's go to you, Matt Bradley. Um, you are in Dnipro. You were in um, you, you were in Kharkiv earlier, but give us uh, the assessment from where you are. Yeah, we were in Kharkiv earlier. We actually came under some shelling or it was nearby. And I know you you have a, a guest who was also there. Um, we decided that that was too close. And so uh, when we heard the shelling in the morning, as I was in the midst of saying how calm and how peaceful the streets of that city were, that we started to hear shells that came a little bit too close for our comfort. Uh, and then the return fire, that sort of rat-a-tat of anti-aircraft fire. Uh, and it was a little too close to our position, so our security consultant made the decision along with us that we should take shelter in the parking garage below our hotel, and then we should come down here to Dnipro, and that's what we did today. That's where you find us now. Um, and the situation here is relatively calm, but, you know, it's clear that, uh, from having been in Kharkiv, that, uh, that, that there is a stalwart defense and that, you know, even though that city is only 25 miles from the Russian border, they haven't moved in. The Russians haven't made it into the center of the city. They haven't actually, and we heard this from Courtney Kuby's assessment from a U.S. official, haven't made it into any major or held any major population district anywhere in Ukraine. They haven't seized any major cities. That's something that the Russians might surprise them. It might actually surprise a lot of Ukrainians. I was speaking with Ukrainian military officials. They had kind of expected a little bit more pessimistic of a, of a response from their own people, from what I understand, than maybe they're seeing now. I think it would have surprised a lot of Ukrainian officials too. But for the men and women in uniform, this is exactly how they wanted things to go. And they're girding for a long night, just as President Zelensky has asked them to, to prepare for Joy. Matt, thank you very much and stay safe out there. Uh, let's go to you, um, Jack Crosby. Um, we started this, uh, you know, program talking about just the anxiety and the shock uh, of going from normal life, um, living your, your normal Western civilization life, and then suddenly having your neighbor invade. And that's got to have produced a lot of anxiety. And just I'm wondering what your take is. Have you had a chance to talk with people? What is the stress level um, right now where you are? Yeah, I mean, it's really profound, Joy. Um, I experienced this sort of firsthand on Thursday morning. Um, we were staying in another location in the city and then um, moved to the hotel that we're, we're currently in now. And riding the subway that morning, there was this sort of profound sense of confusion, anxiety, and fear among the people. Um, it seemed as though half of them weren't sure whether they should go to work as normal or whether they should seek shelter. Um, this was just a couple hours after those initial strikes on early on Thursday morning struck. Um, and that that sense has, has really continued and, and pervaded through the city um, over the past 24 hours. Uh, I was out in the city today speaking to a couple of residents and uh, a 24-year-old uh, man told me just it's it's terrifying. Um, and he says he's not sure that people understand how bad it could get. Uh, the situation in the city right now um, appears to uh, be slightly more stable than in some cities in Ukraine right now. Um, it seems as though Kharkiv is is has been spared some of the violence that we've seen in Kiev over the past day. 
Um, the situation as best I understand it um, is that there is occasional shelling that is is audible and is getting close to the city center uh, where I am that um, Matt experienced this morning as well. Uh, and we experienced again this afternoon, uh, sheltered in the same in the same car park, um, but that Russian troops are mostly still on the outskirts of the city and uh, sort of the the pervading tactical opinion among other reporters and security consultants here is that they're waiting to see what happens in Kyiv. And if that city were to fall, they're waiting to see basically what happens to the government in Kyiv, and that will reflect uh, their behavior toward this city. Joy. Matt, thank you, Matt Bradley, Jack Crosby, and Raf Sanchez. Stay safe, gentlemen. Thank you both. Thank you all three very much. With me now, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. So, Ben, let's unpack some of that. Um, you know, the the reporting that I've been hearing, you know, just watching uh, MSNBC all day, um, is that the the Russians are being less um, overtly violent necessarily um, against the populations, perhaps out of a fear that the insurgency would be worse if they kill or hurt too many people, and that actually the people of Ukraine are actually fighting pretty hard. They're fighting back um, pretty stringently. What's your read on where things stand right now? I think that's exactly right, Joy. If you look at the Russians, they've only moved about a third of their forces that had massed on the borders uh, into Kyiv, into Ukraine, I should say. And they moved in and made these demands repeatedly of the government to essentially surrender. I think that they were testing whether or not the combination of bombardment and moving in and intimidation around all these population centers might have led the government to flee. They wanted to test whether there'd be resistance. And what they're finding is an incredibly resilient political leadership uh, led by President Zelensky and making clear he's not going anywhere um, and he's not surrendering uh, and the population resisting and the Ukrainian military resisting. And I think that in addition uh, to that reality, look, for Vladimir Putin, he has to keep in mind that there are deep ties between Russians and Ukrainians. There are family ties. Many Russians have family in Ukraine, uh, just as many Ukrainians have family in Russians. And images, frankly, like we've seen in Syria, of Russian absolute bombardments of population centers, of cities, uh, raising buildings. Not only would that potentially deepen resistance in Ukraine, as you say, that may actually significantly impact Russian public opinion that could be uncomfortable with witnessing something done in their name that decimates fellow Slavs, family members, uh, ethnic Russians who are in Ukraine. So Putin he here is meeting more resistance than he thought. And it's a much more complicated challenge than anyone that he has faced before in his previous military incursions. You know, it feels as if he completely read this wrong, not understanding how much Ukrainians want to be Ukrainians, not Russians. They don't want to be part of some reestablished USSR. They are willing to fight for their homeland. They're willing to fight for their homes and their families. Uh, do you think he also misread the global situation? Interesting that China abstained in terms of, you know, not siding with them in terms of this vote to condemn them in the United Nations. And it now looks like their access is Belarus and Syria, two other rogue nations. Yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese don't like to stick their neck out uh, in situations like this. I think that they will probably help Russia deal with the impact of sanctions, though. For instance, we've sanctioned uh, through export controls the capacity of Russia to get inputs to its tech sector. I think China may try to make that up. But the reality is, yes, just as the Ukrainians have resisted, just as Ukrainian national identity and a sense of sovereignty is proving to be much stronger than I think Vladimir Putin thought. And keep in mind, Vladimir Putin is someone who 
who's not listening to a lot of voices other than the ones in his own head. You have NATO responding in the way that Putin says he the, the scenario that's unfolding right now is exactly what Putin claimed he wanted to prevent, which is a significant buildup potentially of NATO forces on his borders, the potential for Sweden and Finland to join NATO. So actually the NATO enlargement uh, that he uh, obviously wanted to resist is happening. Um, so in many ways, even though we are not deterring Vladimir Putin, we're not stopping him from what he's doing, uh, he is inviting consequences on himself that in the medium and longer term uh, could prove very damaging to his rule and, and certainly to Russia's interests. And I, and I wonder if these protests, because, you know, it is dangerous to protest in Russia. They don't have freedom of speech. You get arrested pretty, and, and, and God knows what happens when that happens. Um, the fact that Russians are standing up, you know, that you've seen athletes um, that were part of the Olympic Games saying no more war. We don't want war. Um, you know, maybe not naming Putin by name, but standing up to him. Um, I wonder if he really has miscalculated here, because inside his own country, there does not appear to be any appetite to do this to, as you said, their neighbors and in many cases, their family members. Yes. Uh, look, I, first of all, you know, I think that the annexation in Crimea in 2014, which did get a lot of public support in Russia, was a very different circumstance. Crimea is a distinct peninsula, uh, an easier geographic area for uh, Russia to move into. But also Crimea is majority ethnic Russian. And many Russians uh, did believe that Crimea should be a part of Russia. And there wasn't resistance. There weren't body bags coming home. Ukraine is a large country of 44 million people with a very distinct national identity. And Russians know that uh, as well. And, and the reality is, despite the propaganda that has been fed to the Russian people on broadcasting channels, there is social media in Russia. Many Ukrainians right now I've talked to are using Telegram, which is the Russian-created social media app, uh, to communicate directly to Russians, to send videos that are not playing on Russian television, to say, this is what you are doing to our people. And the Ukrainians, including President Zelensky, are saying to Russians, get out on the streets and stop this war. And look, I want to be very clear, Joy. I don't think that this is necessarily going to stop the war. I don't think this, this is going to stop Vladimir Putin from what he's doing in the short term. But again, it does suggest underneath the surface uh, of Vladimir Putin's kind of total control over Russian decision making, a Russian public that is very uneasy about what he has done, as well as pockets of opposition to what he's done in major cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. And what we should watch over time uh, is whether, of course, that grows and what kind of strain that puts on Vladimir Putin. Yeah, to say nothing of the fact that if his oligarch's money starts drying up and their assets are frozen and they can't travel and go to their summer villas in Miami, um, how long his support stays, um, you know, how long he can keep his foot on the necks of all of those people. Uh, ben Rhodes is sticking around um, for our next segment up next on The Readout. Uh, I'm going to talk to a member of the Ukrainian parliament who is vowing to stay and fight the Russians. Also, the retired Florida man spent four years tearing down our alliances. Now, Putin is showing in real time why NATO is so necessary. We're also going to debunk the nonsense about how Trump would have averted this crisis. Plus. Thank you very much. Mr. President, I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. The historic nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson, what it means for the Supreme Court and for black women in America and for America, period. Great news today. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Oh, my God. Nothing could have prepared this Ukrainian president, literally a former comedian, for the role of his life. As a wartime president facing off with one of the world's most vicious autocrats, former KGB officer Vladimir Putin, on the world stage as deadly battles reach the outskirts of his capital, Kyiv. 44-year-old Volodymyr Zelensky is vowing to save his country as he faces a threat to his leadership and also to his life. Axios reports that Zelensky told European Union leaders during a video conference on Thursday, this might be the last time you see me alive. That's according to two European sources briefed on the call. Zelensky had no political experience when he became president, zero, other than playing a president on television. Like the character he played, the real-life Zelensky won the presidency by targeting corruption and a wealthy class of oligarchs. But he would soon get dragged into the impeachment scandal of Putin worshiper Donald Trump who held up military aid while pushing Zelensky to dig up dirt on the Biden family to help him win re-election. Zelensky wouldn't play ball, and he was clearly a problem for Trump. But he's an even bigger threat to the Kremlin, which has accused him of being a Western marionette, and more recently falsely claiming, despite Zelensky being Jewish, that Ukraine is run by Nazis. Joining me now is Kira Rudik, who's a member of the Ukrainian parliament, and she joins us from Kyiv. Thank you so much for being here. And um, I guess the, the first most obvious question is, are you confident that President Zelensky is safe? Well, he said that he's in Kiev. It is his duty to remain here. And we just hope for good. We are in parliamentary presidential republic. So it's important that both parliamentaries and President Zelensky are safe. So we can still remain in control. You know, I and I ask that because it does feel like some of Vladimir Putin's sort of mania about Ukraine is very personal and directed against um, President Zelensky because he, he is not a Putin puppet, which is what he wants. Um, and he clearly wants regime change, you know, claiming that the government in Kiev is run by Nazis and drug addicts and every other smear he can think of. How has that impacted those of you who are actually part of this of the government, part of the governing body? So uh, obviously we have all received threats from uh, Russian representatives saying that we are all in a hanging list. And so that when the Russian army would get into Kiev and they want to remove all uh, all the governmental officials, uh, that we all uh, be hanged among, <laughs> near President Zelensky on the same tree. But I guess uh, we replied to them with our army. We replied to them with uh, um, our uh, self-armed individuals like myself and with uh, the self-defense 
resistance um, territories that we uh, who basically are fighting back Russian army like never ever anybody fought before. Yeah, and we even have a picture of you, um, and you, you you put up a tweet of yourself holding an automatic rifle, a Kalashnikov, um, preparing yourself physically to bear arms um, yourself. It, talk about the mental trajectory of going from being, you know, you having your governing responsibilities, your, your your normal life, to this, to having to take, you know, have the possibility of having to use that Kalashnikov and defend your country. So, like, if you would have asked me, like, three days ago about me bearing arms, I would tell you, like, definite no, and we would have, like, an argument or something about that. And then I had to wake up at 5 a.m. because because uh, there were uh, attacks and Air Force attacks, and it was the first siren and the first bomb shelter in my life. And then at 7 a.m. I had to go and to vote for martial law, law in my country. And then we all went um, to the armed forces and asked if we could get some guns. And they gave us guns. And now I have Kalashnikov because I know that, I, that this is an important part of the country protection. So the people, yeah. the leaders would uh, show uh, the people uh, how to act and that we uh, would be a real strong support to our uh, actual forces because they are doing the strategic things. But as you can see, especially on the suburbs of Kiev, there are many Russians being killed uh, by the people like myself. And it's like, it's very crazy. It's hard to believe and understand how this happens with you. But yeah. at some point you just say like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to protect this and I'm going to train myself and to mm -hmm. be able to do it the best way I can. You're a bit, uh, there is Alexander Ch uh, Chachenko, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. You, you know, the Ukrainian Minister of Culture and Information Policy, you know, said it's not for Putin to tell us the story of Ukraine. It's about Ukrainians who know better and that Europe, that Ukraine has a European sensibility and European values. But let's talk about the values of your president. Help us take the measure of President Zelensky. What kind of a leader is he? He's obviously not an experienced leader, but he's really having to step up to a challenge unlike any that he could have possibly imagined when he ran for president. So, yeah, uh, when uh, Ukrainian people elected um, a comedian who was actually playing the role of the president, uh, I don't think that anybody thought that this person would at some point have to lead us to the war with Putin, <laughs> not with like some other tyrant, like with Putin was one of the most aggressive people in the world. And right now what we see is happening for the last like couple of days is that he's really stepping up and acting as a leader. Though so I'm a leader of the oppositional party and I have been criticizing the hell out of him. Uh, but right now I think he's doing a very good job. He is uh, um, working on Ukraine's best interest and he he didn't flee. Uh, he was not scared and uh, he, he acts actually above the bar that everybody uh, put for him. You know, uh, that is refreshing to see. Uh, I wish I, I envy that a little bit um, that you uh, from an opposition party are able to come together with a president from the other party to stand uh, in defense of your country and of Western values. We would we could use some of that here in our country. Uh, Kira Rudik, stay safe. Thank you so much for taking the time to Thank talk you. with us. And God bless uh, all of you in Ukraine. Thank you.
And still ahead, NATO activates its multinational response force for the first time in history as Russia provides a vivid demonstration of why the defensive alliance was necessary in the first place. We'll be right back. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. In his bizarre rants on Russian state TV, we've heard Vladimir Putin justify his unprovoked attack on Ukraine as a response to NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe. But ironically, by invading his neighbor and threatening the collective security of Europe, he's single-handedly proving why NATO is still necessary. After all, it's a defensive alliance created at the outset of the Cold War to counter the kind of Russian aggression we're now seeing against a non-NATO country. Moreover, it's intended to deter attacks on its members, since under Article 5, an attack on one is considered an attack on all. So it is no surprise Putin's actions have prompted more countries to consider joining NATO, including Finland, which shares an 800-mile border with Russia. In fact, Finland knows firsthand what it's like to be in Ukraine's shoes. You may forget that in the beginning of World War II, Russia was actually aligned with Nazi Germany which gave Joseph Stalin the green light to annex Finland by force in 1939. But the Russian invasion, known as the Winter War, was far from the cakewalk that Stalin had anticipated. To Russia's embarrassment, their vastly superior forces were outmaneuvered by Finland's nimble ski battalions, who were famously outfitted in white camouflage and bravely repelled the invaders from their home turf. So given their history with Russia, it is understandable why Finland may want NATO's protection, especially after President Joe Biden put forward the chilling prospect that Putin has ambitions beyond Ukraine. And unsurprisingly, Russia today threatened Finland, as well as Sweden, warning of, quote, serious military political repercussions if either country tries to join NATO. Joining me now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. He's the host of Fireside History on MSNBC's The Choice on Peacock. And Julia Iafi, founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck News. Um, thank you both for being here. Michael, I will start with you. There is this sense that Putin thinks he's rewriting history, but he doesn't seem to understand it very well. Um, because the kind of aggression that he's putting forward, he, he, I guess he thinks he's the hero in this movie. He's literally every single villain from, the, <laughs> from World War II forward. Your thoughts? <laughs> Right. Uh, he's mesmerized by Stalin, the dominant figure in Russia and the Soviet Union in the 20th century and beyond. And that means ruthless use of power. And one thing that meant a lot to Stalin was conquering these republics, these countries along the borderland, 
of the of the Soviet Union, as it was then called, to try to give them security. I had an, an experience personally in December of 1991. I was writing a book with Strobe Talbot, was in the Kremlin talking to Mikhail Gorbachev. It was a week after Ukraine had voted to become independent, 12 days before the end of the Soviet Union. And even Mikhail Gorbachev, who is now known as the one who let all these countries go, did not roll the tanks in to keep them as Soviet satellites. Even he said, you know, I am not, in fact, I've got a picture that he drew. He said, I'm not going to, while drawing this picture, he said, I'm not going to let the Soviet Union be cut up into a pie to be served with tea. That all came hmm. from Stalin. The whole idea was you keep the Soviet Union together and you keep the satellites of Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, there we are, uh, Strobe Talbot and myself, 1991. Uh, Gor even someone as good as Gorbachev was saying, you know, you have to keep the the, the republics, as he called them, part of the Soviet Union. Quick point. Uh, Michael, looking, At the time, look, look, a lot of mm -hmm. Eastern European countries were saying, we want to be part of NATO. Even Gorbachev was saying, no need, there will never be again a Stalin. He was wrong. That's what Putin is. Well, indeed. And I have to note that you're looking quite young and, and, uh, and, and fresh in that picture. Really great photo. Uh, thank you for bringing little, that little along with over, us. I think. Thank you. <laughs> Looking good. Uh, Julia Iafi, um, the problem with the calculus that Putin has created here is that Ukraine is a distinct country and they don't want to be part of a new Soviet Union. They want nothing to do with it. And so he's finding greater resistance than he'd expected. Um, and all he's doing is bolstering the desire of non-NATO countries to say, maybe we should join NATO. You know, I'm quite sure that the leadership in Ukraine wishes at this point that they had been in NATO because it might have stopped uh, this aggression against them. I think there's a couple things going on here. On First of all, you're completely right. And this has been going on since 2014, when Putin first invaded Ukraine. This is his second invasion, let's recall. He invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea illegally, uh, started this astroturf separatist war in the east. And before 2014, NATO was mostly tied up in Afghanistan. The only time Article 5 had ever been invoked was after 9-11. And NATO countries came to the aid of the U.S. And things with uh, Putin weren't that bad between Putin and NATO. He even allowed a NATO transit point to open on Russian territory to allow NATO uh, to open a, basically an easier path for NATO to ship uh, troops and material to Afghanistan. There were joint Russian-NATO exercises. Um, there was constant dialogue. But as and, and NATO kind of almost didn't have a point anymore. And then he invaded Ukraine and suddenly NATO was again an anti-Russian organization. And so much of this is a crisis of, of his own making of that he invented in his paranoid mind. And then he's doing everything to make a reality. Uh, a friend of mine in Moscow pointed out that, you know, before 2014, and this is Everybody has observed this, but before 2014, Ukraine was kind of split. It was this seesaw between the Ukrainian-speaking East, which uh, West, which had a, a different kind of uh, Christianity, in the East, where people were more likely to be Russian speakers and feel nostalgia for the Soviet Union, and the political system was kind of a seesaw. One election, presidential election, would uh, elect a pro like one year would be a pro-Russian leader, next time would be a pro-Western leader, and it would just kind of go back and forth. And NATO membership right. wasn't even that popular until 2014. Now they want to join NATO. 
But the other problem is that in 2008, George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice uh, promised NATO membership eventually to Georgia and Ukraine. And there were many people, including French, uh, the French and the Germans, as well as people inside the American government who said, this is not a good idea. This is going to infuriate Vladimir Putin and, and it will have repercussions down the road. And George W. Bush kept pushing. And so we got the worst of both worlds. The U.S. Uh, irritated Russia, provoked it, but then left these republics hanging without any of the protection that they yeah. promised them. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's quite an awful ironic crisis. It, it definitely is. And Michael, you know, the, the, the irony is, you know, you have a sort of tool of thought on the right that says, well, if president, you know, if the president was still named Trump and not Biden, this wouldn't be happening. But I'm old enough to remember that there have been published reports that what Trump would have done is taken us out of NATO. He actually wanted to destroy NATO. I mean, there is a, there was a, you know, the, the, here's from a book uh, called, that called I Alone Can Fix It. Um, Trump had privately indicated that he would seek to withdraw from NATO should he win re-election, saying in a meeting, we'll do it in the second term. So NATO's survival would have been in even greater threat. And now it seems that NATO will get stronger because of what Putin is doing. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, uh, the summer of 2016, Donald Trump is about to get nominated. What's the first thing he does? He tells the Republican Platform Committee, I want to change Republican policy on Ukraine. I don't want the United States anymore to take a position of defending Ukraine. I remember at the time thinking, where's this coming from? I mean, this is something that no one else is talking about. What's on his brain? And then he spends four years trying to dismantle NATO. It it leads you to assume that in a Trump second term, this was exactly what was planned, which was that Putin would conquer Ukraine. But instead of the situation we've got now, which is Joe Biden doing everything he can short of war to stop it, instead, you would have had an American president crossing his arms and essentially saying, go ahead. I hate NATO. I'm going to block it from doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been full Neville Chamberlain time, which is, you know, it's why it helps to to know the history. It exactly. Michael Beschloss, Julia Iaffe. Thank you both very much. Still to come, history is made at the White House as President Biden nominates Katanji Brown-Jackson to the United States Supreme Court. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we, in fact, get every representation. Not a joke. Not a joke. Two years to the day later, President Biden delivered on that promise, nominating Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. Biden made the announcement today, flanked by Judge Jackson and Kamala Harris, the first black woman to be elected vice president, whom he praised for having helped him make his decision. Uh, If confirmed by the Senate, Judge Jackson will make history or herstory in this case, becoming the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. In her remarks, Judge Jackson paid homage to another trailblazer, Constance Baker Motley, civil rights hero and the nation's first black woman federal judge. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. If I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, 
and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. With me now, Janae Nelson, Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Janae, I just want to go ahead and get your, uh, your reaction to this nomination. Joy, I am elated. Today was a moment of unprecedented historic importance and, and one of advancement for our country, for our judiciary, for our democracy. This was a moment of which every single resident of this country should be so proud. And let me just say that as a Black person, as a Black woman, as a Black woman lawyer, and as a leader at a Black-founded legacy organization that produced not only the first Black Supreme Court justice in 1967, Thurgood Marshall, but also the first Black woman federal judge, I'm just swelled with pride on so many levels. Uh, I have to say, I'm deeply proud of our president for honoring his unwavering commitment to make this historic nomination, despite the pressures that he received to do otherwise. This nomination breaks a 232-year shutout of Black women from serving on the highest court of the land. So this is a moment that we should all be celebrated. It, is, uh, it was an opportunity for Americans to see the countless qualified and overqualified Black women who could have also been successful nominees. And beyond the historic nature of this nomination is the fact that Judge Jackson is supremely qualified in every way. And she brings much needed professional diversity, racial diversity, increased gender diversity on the court. And her nomination and ultimate appointment could not be more timely. We are facing yeah. so many critical issues as a nation. Yeah, no, I saw a tweet today by uh, an attorney who said, uh, you know, she's got all the qualifications of John Roberts when he was nominated, plus seven more years on the bench. <laughs> so she's obviously beyond qualified uh, for this job. Uh, it, it, what, I, I feel like it's, there's something resonant about the fact that, you know, while it is, it will still be a 6-3 far right-wing majority court, the, the three will include a Jewish woman, a Latina, and a black woman, which is so kind of resonant to me about the, you know, the emerging majority in the country and about the emerging multiracial democracy that we live in. That to me is, is pretty resonant. But what about you? Well, it resonates with me too. And I think it will resonate with most residents of this country. It, it is a microcosm of the imbalance of power that still exists in this country with a growing, emerging, browning electorate with women who are taking increasingly higher posts and positions of leadership in this country and who should be having a say in making the determinations that will govern our lives. To have three women, two women of color, one Latina, one Black woman on the court, uh, it's, just, it's just an incredible testament to what this country can produce when we take courageous steps, when we hold to our convictions and values and live up to the commitment of diversity. And we leverage the diversity of this country, which is our greatest strength. So I have no yep. doubt that with this addition to the court, that court will uh, be deciding issues in a, in a different way with a different lens and perspective. 
Uh, we, you know there's going to be a fight uh, because Republicans have already started caterwauling uh, about this incredibly qualified uh, nominee. But several Republicans, I will put them up on the screen, you know, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Lindsey Graham, they voted for Judge Jackson before. They voted to confirm her before. They're not, they're not standing by that they will do that again. Um, what do you expect this fight to look like over the nomination? And do you think, I mean, well, do you anticipate it being a fight? Well, listen, I don't think there's a black woman in America who has achieved the status that Judge Jackson has uh, without a fight and without being able to fight for herself and for her dignity and her rightful place as a leader in this nation. I do hope that this Senate will be respectful, will be uh, will honor its constitutional mandate to advise and consent. And when you have a Supreme Court nominee as qualified as Judge Jackson, there really shouldn't be a fight. But of course, we're ready for for a potential pushback. And we know that this is a highly politicized process. So we're not being naive about some of the missives that may come her way. But she is basically like Teflon. If you think about the credentials that she brings to the court. And I thought she was really smart to talk about, you know, she has an uncle that was in the criminal justice system, but she also has, you know, brother brothers that were, you know, in law enforcement. She's got a, a family history in law enforcement as well. She put all that out there. I thought it was really brilliant. Her speech today was fantastic. I wanted to make a quick turn here because today is also uh, the 10 year uh, anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, it was one of the earliest cases that I covered uh, as as a, as a journalist. Um, and it still sticks with me. He still sticks with me. Tomorrow is the anniversary. Sorry. Um, what do you think that that case in which the, the, the shooter was acquitted? Where are we in terms of this search for equal justice um, for people of color um, when faced with gun violence, whether it's police induced or not? We are we are too far away from where we should be. Trayvon Martin, a young black man, a promising adolescent lost his life 10 years ago because of a a wannabe law enforcement vigilante who was protected by stand your ground laws that don't apply equally depending on the color of your skin. And I think it is important that we revisit those laws. We've seen numerous cases since then that have uh, continued to perpetuate the discrimination in applying stand your ground laws. All of us should be protected to freely walk through our residential areas, through public spaces, and even through yep. private spaces without the threat of uh, potential yeah. fatality. So it is yeah, a sad, indeed. it is a sad remembrance. It's a sad anniversary for, for sure. And uh, much love to his family, his parents and his brother. Uh, Janae Nelson, thank you very much for being here. Up next, National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman has some timely words for us about peace. Back in a sec. We are proud and we stand by your side, even though we are so far away. Displays of blue and yellow shine brightly around the world as people from all walks of life show their solidarity with Ukraine. Our favorite poet, Laureate Amanda Gorman showed her support with this message of hope, tweeting, There is no such thing as gentle war. There is no peace that cannot be flung aside. Our only enemy is that which would make us enemies to each other. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.